This morning's scripture reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 13 through 27. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but, my, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Well, good morning. Uh, My name is Matt Scogan. I'm one of the lay pastors here. And we're in the middle of a sermon series called I'd Like To, But I Can't. And on Friday night around 11 o'clock while I was watching the Mets-Dodgers game, I got a text from Ryan saying, I'd like to preach, but I can't. (laughs) That's actually not what he said, but that would have been cool. Um, Either way, you see obviously why he's not here, which is exciting. And we're happy to give Ryan at least a day or two of paternity leave. Uh, So I've been sort of called in late from the bullpen, and what I would ask from you is a little bit of mercy because I'm just not as prepared or as organized as I would like to be. And because of the circumstances, what we're going to do is take a week hiatus from the series that we're in, and we'll pick that up again next week. Next week will be, I'd like to change, but I can't. So invite your friends back. It'll be a great uh, sermon on personal transformation. And then the following week will be, I'd like to forgive, but I can't. This week, we're going to take a a break from that series, which we're only one week into. And what I thought I would do is sort of pick up where we left off last week. Last week, we talked about uh, believing and doubting. And I thought what I would do is do a little bit of follow-up to that. I think I can talk about what it means to believe in Jesus without a ton of prep. And if you were with us last week, we did, I'd like to believe, but I can't. And we really talked about doubts and overcoming doubts. And, And we made a number of important observations about doubts. For one thing, we said that doubting can be an important part of putting you on a, on a healthy path to become a believer. Ryan cited this quote from Francis Bacon who said that doubts, who said that if you begin with certainty, you're likely to end in doubts. But if you begin with doubts, you're likely to end in certainty. And it's a, a great quote because it says that doubting isn't something we need to be afraid of. Doubting isn't something we need to be scared of. Instead, doubting means that we might be on the right path. And I love the terminology Ryan used last week. He said, if you're a doubter, that doesn't mean you're an unbeliever. It means maybe that you're a pre-believer. So this morning, I want to talk to the pre-believers and the new believers and the uh, old, more seasoned believers 
alike. And, and wherever you fit on that spectrum, I think it does make sense once in a while to just take a step back and say, well, what does it really mean to believe in Jesus? What does it really mean? I mean, for one thing, belief is never something we can really move beyond. It's not like we can really say, okay, check, check the box with belief. I'm done with that. Now I'm going to move on to some other Christian principle, keeping the Sabbath or something like that. No, belief is something you go deeper into, but you can never really move on. That's the way C.S. Lewis described it. He said, belief is something you go deeper into. And he said, once you're in belief, you realize that it's far bigger on the inside than it looked on the outside. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at what does it mean to believe in Jesus? What does it mean? Around the world today, two billion people say they do. Two billion people. That's roughly a third of the world's population. It's the world's largest religion. But what do they mean? What do they mean when they say they believe in Jesus? Do they simply mean they believe he existed, that he's a historical figure? Or do they mean what Jesus says it means to believe in him? Americans. You've probably seen these polls. If you ask Americans, do they believe in Jesus, it's an astonishingly high percentage. Usually around 80% of Americans say they believe in Jesus. Same question. What do they mean when they say they believe in Jesus? Do they simply mean they believe he existed, or do they mean what Jesus says it means to believe in him? That, of course, begs the question, what does Jesus say it means to believe in him? What does he say it means to believe in him? And to get at that question... That's what we're going to try to unpack this morning, by the way, to unpack what Jesus says it means to believe in him. And to do so, we're going to go back to this story from Matthew 16. This is a famous encounter that Jesus has with his disciples regarding his identity and theirs, really. This is the story of the first conversion to Christ. It's the first declaration of faith. And in this story, I'm going to pick out four things that Jesus highlights that tell us what he thinks it means to believe in him. We could come up with a long list of things, but this morning I'm going to highlight four. And the first thing we see in this story is that believing in Jesus is first and foremost a matter of answering him. Believing in Jesus is first and foremost a matter of giving an answer to a question that Jesus asks. See, most of us think it's the other way around. Most of us think we're the ones that are asking the questions, that we're the ones that are doing the right kind of intellectual investigation, that we're the ones doing the right soul searching and the right question asking about the universe and our existence and and meaning. But Jesus says, no, you've got it backwards. I'm the one asking the questions and you're the ones giving the answers. That's how this story starts off. It says, when Jesus got to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? Now, Jesus, like always, is doing a number of really interesting and clever things here. For one thing, the area where he picked to ask this question is strategic. This region, Caesarea Philippi, is a region that's filled with past religious history and association. It was in this region that the Canaanites, the worship of the Canaanite god Baal, centered here in this region. Later, when the Greeks occupied the area, the Greeks believed that the god Pan was birthed in this region. There's a a grotto nearby, and that's where the Greeks believed the god Pan was birthed. It's the same grotto, by the way, that the Jews believed the headwaters of the Jordan River flowed. So there's all of that religious association. And then there's the name of this place, Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi, Caesar. It's, it's named after a Roman emperor. So this is a, it's a bit of a dramatic scene with lots of association. And Jesus picked this place to say, who do people say I am? Among all these options for truth and meaning in the world, where do I stand? 
among Baal and, and Pan and Judaism and Roman emperor worship? Where do I stand? Am I one among these many options for truth and meaning, or am I the one? Am I a Lord among these other lords, or am I the Lord above the many? It's also interesting to note how Jesus asks the question, and he does it in a series of stages. He first says, what do other people say about who I am? And they say, well, some people say you're John the Baptist. Other people say you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets that's come back from the dead. And look, then like now, there were a lot of opinions about who Jesus was, and none of them were correct. None of them are correct. And Jesus says, well, who do they think I am? And then he says, well, what do you think? What do you think? Do you see what he's doing? He's forcing them to consider their answer to his question in relation to all the other answers. So your answer to Jesus will inevitably set you apart from the rest of public opinion. It will inevitably set you apart from the rest of the world. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's putting them on the spot. And it's the same thing he's doing to us. He's putting us on the spot. This is part of what we said last week. We have to decide whether or not we believe that Jesus is who he said he was or not. And whether you like it or not, whether you know it or not, you're deciding right now, based on the way you're living your life, whether or not you believe Jesus is who he said he was. He has put you on the spot. He's the one asking the question, not the other way around. There's a great C.S. Lewis essay called God and the Dock. He means God in the docket or God on trial. And in this essay, C.S. Lewis says generations before ours believed that people were on trial, that people had to give answers to God. But modern man has put God on the dock and says, God, we're ready to receive your answers to our questions. And if they're good answers, we'll accept you. Yeah, that's the way a lot of us think. That's the way a lot of us think. But Jesus says, you've got it totally backwards. Jesus says, I'm the one asking the questions and you're the one giving answers. If you read through the gospels, by the way, anytime somebody asks a question of Jesus, it usually doesn't turn out very well. We're the ones being put on the spot by God. And so what does that mean? What does that mean for our lives? Well, doesn't it mean that if, that if believing is first and foremost a matter of giving an answer to a question that we're being asked, then the Christian life is fundamentally about listening, about paying attention, hearing the question. It's the first thing. The first thing is that Jesus says, believing in me is to give an answer to a question that I ask. It's to give a response to an initiative that God is taking to draw you in. That's the first thing. The second thing, the second thing I want to highlight is that to believe in Jesus is to be an answer to a prayer that Jesus prays to be an answer to a prayer that Jesus prays. In Luke's account of this story, there's one uh, important detail that, doesn't, that we don't have in the, the Matthew account that you heard a few minutes ago. In Luke's account of this story, we learn what Jesus was doing just before he asks the question. Luke 9.18 says Jesus was praying, and then he asks his disciples, what are the, who do the crowds say I am? He's praying. What's he doing before he asks the question? He's praying. Now, he's, he's praying probably about his death that lay ahead, and he's thinking about his death and this, this sacrifice he's going to have to go through, and he's thinking about his disciples, and he's, he's praying that they would understand enough to go with him. It's going to be hard, but the joy on the other side is such that he wants them to understand enough to go with him all the way to the end, and he's praying. 
He's praying, and then he asks the question. That means, by the way, that when he proceeds to ask this question, he's not looking for information back. He's making a proposal. Will you come with me to the end? It's going to be hard, but there's a joy on the other side of it. Will you come with me to the end? Jesus is praying. Does it matter how we answer that question? Yes, he's praying. He's praying. And he's praying for you and me right now. The Bible says he's still at it. We know one thing and one thing for certain about what Jesus is doing in heaven right now. Hebrews 7.25 says Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. Right now, he's praying for us, praying that we'll get it, that we'll get it enough to go with him all the way to the end, all the way through the hard times and come out the other side. I I love the, the story of George Mueller. George Mueller was a great Christian evangelist in the 1800s. He lived in England, and he ran a series of orphanages and schools, uh, 117 of them over the course of his life. Thousands of kids were touched by uh, this man and his great work. But he's equally legendary for for being known as a man of great prayer. And and there's a great story where one of Mueller's childhood friends comes to him and, and says, George, I need you to pray for my five sons. I have five sons, and none of them are believers. Will you pray for my five sons that they'll come to know Christ? And Mueller says, I will. I'll pray every day for your five sons. So he did. For 18 months, Mueller prayed every day, no matter what was going on in his life, he prayed for these five sons. At the end of 18 months, one of the five sons became a believer. He continued to pray. Mueller continued to pray every day for for five more years. No matter what was going on in his life, he continued to pray. At the end of five more years, another son came to Christ. That's two out of five. He kept praying. Every day, every day he kept praying for these sons. After six more years, a third son came to know Christ. That's three out of six. And if you're adding it up, we're at about 12 and a half years. Mueller continued to pray. For 36 more years, he prayed for these last two sons. And 52 years later, after he died... These last two sons became believers. Now, I tell that story because that's a story about the power of being persistent in prayer. And, and I, I believe God does honor persistent prayer. And, and I hope I could pray like that someday. But the real reason I tell that story, hear this, the real reason I tell that story is to give you a picture of the way Jesus is praying for you. He's praying for you every day, every moment of every day that you'll get it. That so you'll get it enough to come with you, with him. He's pleading that you'll understand. He wants you so badly to follow him. And this is the amazing mystery of the gospel that Jesus wants you so badly to follow him, but he doesn't obligate you to. He gives us this amazing dignity of being able to say yes or no to him. He cares so badly that you'll say yes, but he doesn't obligate you to. He's praying every moment of every day that you'll get it, that you'll get it enough to follow him all the way to the end. Why? Because there's suffering. Because at the end of the suffering, there's great joy. That's what Paul says in his letter to the Thessalonians, that there's great joy at the end of the suffering. So that's the first two things. To believe in Jesus is to give an answer to a question that you're being asked Secondly, it's to be an answer to a prayer that Jesus is praying for you. Thirdly, to believe in Jesus is to be shaken by scandal. Now, what do I mean by that? 
Well, look at what happens to Peter in this story. To believe in Jesus means that fundamentally, at one point or another in your walk with him, you will be shaken, you'll be outraged, you'll be offended by what it actually means. When you come to believe in Jesus, at some point or another, you will discover that it means something totally different than what you expected, totally different than what you wanted it to be. That's what happens to Peter here. See, a lot of people try operating on the principles of Christianity, but they don't actually know Christ. A lot of people try separating the principles of Christianity from Christ himself. But of course, it doesn't work. But we see the paradox for why people want to try to do that. We see what happens to Peter in this story. We see what happens to Peter in this story. Because when he became a believer, he suddenly became outraged and shaken at what he heard Jesus say next. And when he did, he went from the heights to the depths. He went from, blessed are you, Simon, to get behind me, Satan. In a matter of moments, he goes from the Lord's first convert to his worst enemy. It says, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter was shaken by what Jesus said about suffering and dying. He was offended by it. He was outraged by it. He thought he was getting one thing by signing up to follow Jesus. He thought he was getting this king, conquering king type of leader. And now he's realizing he's getting a sacrificing king leader. And what's so offensive about it is what the sacrifice says about us. If God had to sacrifice in this insulting, offensive way, that must mean that we're pretty bad. That must mean we're pretty bad. We've seen, well, a number of times really over the last 10 years, uh, riots and, and bloodshed throughout Europe in response to satirical cartoons that have been published about Muhammad. And it climaxed earlier this year in Paris. We've seen it, as I said, a number of times. And and it first uh, sort of bubbled up back in 2006 in response to some cartoons that were published in a Danish newspaper. And at the time, John Piper wrote a a great response, which I want to read part of to you now. John Piper is an author of a lot of great books. He's a pastor from Minnesota. And I want to read part of his response. This is almost 10 years old, but, but I think it's so relevant in illustrating how the gospel story is at its heart an offensive story. This is what he said. He said, what we saw this past week in the Islamic demonstrations over the Danish cartoons of Muhammad was another vivid depiction of the difference between Muhammad and Christ and what it means to follow each. Clearly, not all Muslims approve the violence, but a deep lesson remains. The work of Muhammad is based on being honored, and the work of Christ is based on being insulted. This produces two very different reactions to mockery. If Christ had not been insulted, there would be no salvation. This was his saving work, to be insulted and die in order to rescue sinners from the wrath of God. This was predicted in the Psalms. The path of mockery was promised. Psalm 22, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men as one from whom men hide their faces. And we esteemed him not. And then, when it actually happened, it was even worse than expected. They stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him, twisting together a crown of thorns, and they put it on his head, kneeling before him. And they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they spit on him. His response to all of this? Patient endurance. 
This was the work he came to do, like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he not opened his mouth. This was not true of Muhammad, and Muslims do not believe it's true of Jesus either. Most Muslims have been taught that Jesus was not crucified. One Sunni Muslim writes, Muslims believe that Allah saved the Messiah from crucifixion. Another adds, we honor Jesus more than you Christians do. We refuse to believe that God would permit him to suffer death on the cross. Did you hear that? We refuse to believe it. Why? Because it's so offensive. It's a scandal. This story is a scandal, and it's always been a scandal. And we try to avoid it in a million different ways. Why? Well, because of what it says about us. Because of what it says about us. If this was the way God had to save us, then we must be pretty bad. That leads me to the fourth, the fourth thing I want to highlight. Jesus says that to believe in him means we have to renounce belief in ourselves. We have to renounce belief in ourselves. In order for me to believe in Jesus, I have to renounce belief in Matt. And that's hard. That's what Jesus says at the end of this passage. He says, if anyone must come after me, he must deny himself. If anyone must come after me, they must deny themselves. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, I'll tell you what he doesn't mean. What he doesn't mean is that you have to deny yourself things. What he doesn't mean is that the core of following him is finding the bad things that you'd love to do, but you're not going to do, and you deny yourself those things. That's too easy, actually. As hard as that is, that's too easy. Jesus is asking something far more fundamental, far more significant. Jesus is asking us to deny the self that wants those things. See the difference? Jesus is asking us to deny the self that wants those things. What's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world today? Things? No. I'm what's wrong with the world today. Me, myself, and I, you're what's wrong with the world today. You, yourself, and you. G.K. Chesterton was asked once to write an essay to his local newspaper about what's wrong with the world, and he wrote this. He said, what's wrong with the world today? I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. He's right. He's exactly right. We're what's wrong with the world. We were given a perfect world, and we screwed it up. You know the story of Genesis. God gives Adam and Eve this paradise, the perfect world, and he says, here you go. It's yours. It's all yours. You can do whatever you want except this one thing. Of course, they do the one thing they're not allowed to do. And in Genesis 3, after they've sinned, they're hiding and they're ashamed. And God is walking through the garden. And as he's walking through the garden, he asks a question. We're back to this question thing. It'd be fun, by the way, to do a whole sermon series on the questions that God asks of people. This would be a good one. We could do a whole sermon on this one. Remember what question God asks as he's walking through the garden? They're hiding. They're ashamed. God says, where are you? Where are you? It's a beautiful question. We've sinned, we've screwed up the whole world, and now we're ashamed, but God comes looking for us. And the implication of the question is that he wants us back. He wants us back. That's what you believe when you believe in Jesus. That's what you believe, that we've screwed everything up, but God wants you back. I'm going to close with a story that's a true story, although I don't know the people involved. Uh, this story was told to me by a, by a former pastor, actually a, a, the pastor of our, of our college when Sarah and I were in college. And I've heard him tell it a couple times, and he does know the people involved, so it's true. But it just stuck with me. Uh, the story's about a man 
who's an upstanding citizen. He's respected by everybody. He is an active member of his church. He has a wife and two kids, uh, but he has a problem. We all have problems, but this particular man had a, had a real mental demon that he was wrestling with. And, and one day, he exposed himself uh, publicly in front of a school with kids outside. Now, this is, you know, this is as disgusting, as disturbing, as perverted as it, as it gets in our society. And from what I understand, this was a, a long, messy process. Uh, he went through years of counseling and therapy. His wife stayed with him. But it was hard for a long time. His kids forgave him, but it was hard for a long time. And he eventually started coming back to church. But he could never get over this, this, this thing in his mind that God would really want him back. He could never really come to grips with the fact that God would want him back. And one Sunday, as, they were, as he was there, and they were starting to serve communion... And this is a Baptist church, and maybe you've seen these in some churches. They serve the, the wine or the juice in little plastic cups. And the, the elders get up, and they start to pass out communion. And one of the elders sees this man get up in the back of the room. And I love this. I hope I could do something this courageous someday. The elder sees the man get up and walk out of the back of the room, and he knows exactly why he's leaving. He knows exactly why he's leaving. So this elder takes two of the little cups, two of the little plastic cups, grabs two pieces of bread, and goes out looking for him. And he goes out into the parking lot, and he sees this guy at the other side of the parking lot, and he starts walking toward him. Now this man sees the elder coming toward him, and he starts to walk away. The elder goes after him. The elder starts to pick up his pace a little bit. He's doing his best not to spill the wine or juice or whatever, and he chases him down the block. This goes on for several blocks. Finally, at the end of a cul-de-sac, the man is cornered. The elder catches up to him, and, and he's weeping. And the man says, I, I don't deserve this. And the elder says, that's the point. That's the point. Neither do I. Neither do I. That's God. That's God. He's chasing you down the block. He's chasing you down the block, just asking you to renounce belief in yourself, just asking you to turn around and see him. He's chasing you down. He wants you back so badly. And when you believe in Jesus, that's what you believe. That's what you believe that we've screwed it up, but Jesus wants us back. Let's pray. Father, we get so easily caught up in what uh, the world says it means to believe in you. While we know that what you actually say is something altogether different than what most of us expect. We know that believing in you is to make a series of miraculous discoveries that, one, you've put us on the spot, that you've asked us a question that demands a response, not the other way around. We know, God, that believing in you is to be an answer to a prayer that you're praying, that we would come into death and sacrifice with you because the joy on the other side is so great. God, we know that believing in you is to fundamentally be rocked by the scandal of this story, and we know that it will require the hard work of renouncing belief in ourselves. But, oh, it'll be worth it. God, we pray that we would feel your love this week in a real tangible way as we go out into the world and do whatever we have to do. We, would, we pray that we would feel your love in a real tangible way. Thank you also for uh, Ryan and Brittany and their family, and we pray your blessings on the new life that you've bestowed on them this week, uh, that you would cover them with special joy and special amount of blessings this week. In your holy name we pray, amen.